So today the message is going to be from uh, the second psalm. Let uh, I will read it, and you can follow along reading from the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit said through King David this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord and ask Him for help. Heavenly Father, this psalm is too great for any of us. The subjects in it, Father, You and Your Son, are beyond our comprehension, are beyond our worth, and yet You call us to it. Help me, Lord, to make You and the Son look great. Help us to hear the greatness of You and the Son. And help us heed the warnings that are in this passage and receive the blessings, the many blessings in the Word of God of all those who kiss the Son. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank the elders for the opportunity to, to preach. Uh, when I was asked and was, uh, considering it, I was so glad that this psalm was not taken. Um, this psalm is wonderful. They all are, of course. And this one especially so, because this kind of hits me right in my wheelhouse. This is, for me, what I was telling to a brother, calling a brother talking about studying the life of Christ. This is red meat for me. Uh, this is, I, I just, maybe it's an obsession, I don't know. But I, I cannot, I cannot emphasize on how important and how life-changing it is for me to study the life of Christ and see Christ in all of the Scriptures. I'm convinced, I am absolutely 100% convinced that if our younger generation would see Jesus in the entire Bible and see Him as the theme and a unifying whole, it would be a powerful apologetic. A powerful defense of the faith. I love studying the life of Christ and the unity grounded of Scripture grounded in Christ. I had studied life of Christ before and Jesus in Scripture. As the men know, when I was teaching in the Life of Christ class, which has been going on since May of 2021, Mike Hawkins said last week, basically, like, you're still on that same teaching topic? You know? Yeah. Um, but who knows when that's going to end. Maybe the Lord will come first. Uh, but in any case, um, I, I mentioned His name over and over and over again. Uh, in the men's Sunday school class, but when I had heard at my former church Doug Bookman talk about the, la- the Passion Week of the Life of Christ, something changed in me. Uh, some, obviously, I had heard about Christ, I knew about the Life of Christ, knew about the last week, but it was just 
absolutely started a fire in me, and I hope to relay some of that passion today. If you're so inclined to look up his name and look up his teaching in the life of Christ, it would be much better for it. I want to talk about first this introduction to the psalm. And every message, I believe, has had something about the introduction to the psalms. Psalm 2, I just want to spend a few minutes on it. Psalm 2, to do our first point, is part of the introduction to the psalms. Psalm 2 is part of the introduction to the psalms. It seems like we heard Psalm 1 preached so long ago. Many rightly consider Psalm 1 to be part of the introduction to the Psalter, but Bible scholars have also rightly seen Psalm 2 in conjunction with Psalm 1 as the introduction to this wonderful book. So as they say, and I would echo to you, think of Psalm 1 and 2 as a unit that forms the introduction to the entire book of the Psalms. That's how I think we should think about it. Bible commentators have observed that some of the words from Psalm 1 are repeated in Psalm 2, which link these psalms together. I'm not going through all of them, but I'll give you three. Uh, In Psalm 1, verse 2, it talks about meditating. And in Psalm 2, verse 1, where it talks about the nation's plotting, it's the same word. It's the same word. Or consider uh, Psalm 1, verse 6, that talks about the wicked perishing. And then in Psalm 2, 12, you have the same word for perishing. Or consider the word blessed in Psalm 1, uh, verse 1. Now, blessed is the man. And then there's Psalm uh, 2.12 where it talks about blessed are all who take refuge in him. And there's so much more we could, we could say about that, but there is no time. Um, it has been observed that the first two psalms are linked together as a unit to demonstrate the main theme or themes of the psalms. And I would say that there is a primary, not exclusive, but there is a primary subject in the Psalms. And in particular, in this Psalm, it's the Messiah. The Psalms are about the Messiah. And our second point, Psalm 2 is about the Messiah, the Anointed One. It is. Categorization of Psalm 2 has differed. Some view the Psalm as royal and uh, a coron- or a coronation psalm, yet others view it as a royal or messianic or prophetic psalm. I'm convinced that this psalm is a royal and a messianic psalm. And I'm convinced that David knew he was writing about the Messiah. I- I'm-, I'm convinced of it. Uh, there was already, and I just echo the chorus has gone before me, there's already been a prophetic witness in the Old Testament prior to this about the Messiah prior to the psalm. There's already been revelation about this anointed one who was to come. There are just three messianic passages I'll go with you really quickly. And they're there in your uh, bulletin as well. Genesis 49.10. I'll read it to you. If you want to flip there, you can, but I'll just just read it. Genesis 49.10 in the ESV says this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Oh, context. Sorry. Context. Uh, Jacob, or Israel, is on his deathbed. And before he dies, he's going to be blessing each of his sons with a blessing. And he speaks prophetically under the inspiration, I believe, of the Holy Spirit. And he is now in the context of talking about his son Judah. So verse 10 of Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, if you have the ESV, you should notice a footnote. We won't quote all the footnote, but one of the alternative interpretations of this passage is, um, 
you see there, if you have the footnote, until he comes to whom it belongs. The Legacy Standard Bible has a footnote which says, quote, or, quote, or until he comes to Shiloh, or until he comes to whom it belongs, end quote. One Bible teacher who's greatly helped me understand the Messiah, the Messianic nature of the Old Testament, Michael Rodelnik, has convinced me that we should understand this to say, where it says, until tribute comes to him, we should understand this to say, until he comes to whom it belongs. In other words, someday there's going to be a one who's going to come, and this kingship and the rule, it belongs to him, and he's coming. And who is this person? Who is the he? It's the Messiah. The scepter, the kingly rule, belongs to the tribe of Judah, and it will not depart from Judah until he to whom it comes belongs comes and claims it, and all the peoples of the world will obey him. Or Numbers 24.17. This is the Balaam oracles. Balaam is giving prophecies. He's been hired to curse Israel, but God won't let him do it. And this is his final prophecy, his final oracle. And there's, there's stuff in here about the Messiah besides this, but just Numbers 24.17 says this. I see him not, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Note the scepter, the symbol of a king and his rule, will rise from Israel. And this scepter, the messianic king, this Messiah king, will crush his enemies. Or consider a passage that's referenced in writings about the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. This is an unusual one, but I think it's really good. I think it's referenced for good reason. This is Samuel's mother, Hannah. Do you remember the story in the Bible about Hannah? Remember, the Lord loved her, her husband loved her, but she could not bear a child. And she had asked the Lord from it, and it's an indictment on the priest of the day, Eli, thinks she's drunk. Uh, but he, she corrects him and she's praying to the Lord for a child and the Lord grants her Samuel. So in thankfulness to that, she is bringing Samuel to the tabernacle so he can serve the Lord. She prays a prayer of rejoicing to God, noting his power, his exaltation of the lowly and the humiliation of the proud and the protection of God's people and the destruction of his enemies. Note how her prayer ends. And this is where we go to 1 Samuel 2.10. Notice how her prayer ends. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. She is speaking of the promised King. Note the extent of the judgment and the destruction of the enemies. She is speaking about the Messiah. Notice how practical it is that the Lord gives her a son and she's thinking about the Messiah. She's thinking about who we know is Jesus. It's not stretching the text in Psalm 2 to say that David is writing about the Messiah. No, there's already a foundational understanding and anticipation of the Messiah coming. And David expresses that in this psalm. We are not reading into the text. We are bringing out what is here in the psalm itself. 
Don't be tempted to think that because David was writing about the future Messiah that the psalm has no practical application to his life, or to ours for that matter. On the contrary, it is immensely practical because the future hope of the Messiah guided his everyday life. The choices he made, his worship of the Lord, his relationships, albeit imperfectly, of course, all of this was affected by this messianic expectation. It is the same with us today. And yet we know, or should know more, than even David did. Because the Messiah did come. And we know precisely who He is. Jesus of Nazareth. We also should know, as the Old Testament people of God did, that is coming to rule and reign. And as we await that day, the expectation of His return to reign, it should guide our everyday life. It should guide the choices we make. It it should guide the church we attend, the spouses that we unite with, the friends that we make, the the thoughts that we think, the words that we speak. It should guide everything. And finally, our third point here, Psalm 2 is part of the Old Testament's larger witness about the Messiah. From a certain perspective, the entire Old Testament is written about the Messiah. All of it. I like what... I deeply enjoy what James Hamilton says about the Old Testament. He says this, quote, From start to finish, the Old Testament is a messianic document written from a messianic perspective to sustain a messianic hope. End quote. What he says is simple yet profound. The Old Testament is written with the Messiah primarily in mind. Lost my place. About the Messiah in order to preserve the hope that God's people, that the Messiah, an anointed one, specifically chosen by God Himself, would come and restore all things. An Old Testament scholar named John Salehammer believed this as well. And what he said about the first five books of the Old Testament and the whole Bible, I'm convinced, is increasingly valuable, incredibly valuable, in helping us understand the Scriptures. He said this, quote, The Pentateuch and the rest of the Hebrew Bible tells us there will be a Messiah. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the Messiah spoken of in the Hebrew Bible. End quote. So, boys and girls, young and old, everyone, you want to help understand your Bible in a simple way? Think of it like that. The Old Testament tells us there's an anointed one, a Messiah, a deliverer, a king coming. The New Testament tells us that guy is Jesus. Amen. There it is. Of course, there's more to the Word of God in that, but that's helpful to get you categorize things in your in your mind. All of the Bibles about Jesus in Psalm two is especially about Him and His reign. So let's look at Psalm two now and see Him in it. So first thing we notice about this Psalm is the conspiracy against Yahweh and His anointed. The conspiracy against Yahweh and His anointed. I'm going to use the term Yahweh. This is the Hebrew name. This is God's covenant name for Himself that He gave to Moses at the burning bush. Some of your translations, you will see the capital L-O-R-D. That's what it's standing for, is Yahweh. So, Yahweh and His anointed, the conspiracy against them. Look at what uh, chapter two, verse one, or Psalm 2, verse 1 says. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The psalmist begins to asking why the Gentile nations are, as the New American Standard 95 says, in an uproar and why they're plotting in vain. The nations here are restlessly and vainly plotting. They are restlessly and vainly plotting. 
These nations are the Gentile peoples of the world. These Gentile peoples are raging. The Hebrew word for rage here can mean restless. So they are restless. What are they restless about? How are they expressing it? Through plotting. The word is the same. This is the same word in Psalm 1-2 for meditate. So they're meditating. One of the understandings this word has is to mutter while in meditation. So they're muttering to themselves. They're muttering amongst themselves in meditation. They're muttering and they're devising an evil scheme. And as we find out, it's against Yahweh and His anointed. The psalmist, however, says that this plotting is in vain. It's useless and will amount to nothing. Just as all rebellion against God will. Secondly, the world's rulers, they conspire against Yahweh and His anointed. This is verse 2. They conspire against Yahweh and His anointed. Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying... So the kings of the earth set themselves. So in the place of set themselves, that the ESV has it, some other versions, Legacy Standard Bible, 95 of the New American Standard, and the Christian Standard Bible, translate this as take their stand. That's how they say it. And I think that's helpful. Several Hebrew dictionaries define it the same. One of these dictionaries, the Lexham Analytical, uh, Lexicon of the Hebrew Bible, defines it like this for Psalm 2 2, and they give it, a, and for other verses, and they give it a really good definition. So it says this, quote, to take a defensive fighting position. To take a defensive fighting position. So the kings of the earth, these Gentile kings, are taking a defensive fighting position. They're preparing for war. Okay, that's the idea. And look here in verse 2. And the rulers take counsel together. Two translations, CSB and LEB, use the phrase conspire together to describe the plotting of the world's rulers. They are uniting together against a common enemy. And the earth's kings are preparing for war against this enemy. Who is this enemy? Well, David tells us. Against the Lord and against His anointed. The earth's kings are preparing for war against and the earth's rulers are conspiring against Yahweh and His anointed. The promised one of Genesis 49, Numbers 24, and 1 Samuel 2.10. To riff off of a popular credit card commercial and a former president, the decision to fight and to conspire against Yahweh, the one true God, maker of heaven and earth, the supreme sovereign, and his anointed, has to be the worst decision in the history of decisions. You talk about a fool's errand. It's never going to work, ever. But that doesn't stop them, does it? What's their strategy? What's it say? These world kings and Gentile rulers... What is, what is their conspiracy that they have devised? Well, verse 3 tells us. What's it say? It says this, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what's their plot? Freedom from their bondage. That's essentially what they're saying. The Gentile kings and the world rules conspire to burst their bonds and cast away their cords. The Net Bible expresses it well. It says this, quote, They say, let us tear off the shackles they have put on us. Let us free ourselves from their ropes. End quote. What is the idea that these rulers are expressing? The idea is this. Let us free ourselves from their rule, which is bondage. Do you see it? The world, which is represented by their rulers here, believes that the sovereign reign of Yahweh and His anointed 
instead of being a joyful, peaceful, prosperous reign, is instead one of anguish, dread, and oppression. What God's people know as freedom, they believe is bondage. What a different way to interpret it, isn't it? And the world, thank you very much, will have none of this. It's time, they think, to overthrow their oppressors. They're being oppressed, so it's now time to overthrow them. How familiar is that? As Jesus once said in a parable, we do not want this man to reign over us. One author, I can't recall who, it says, if Psalm 1 indicates that the way of the wicked is is to perish, then why are the nations taking their stand against God and His anointed? Why are they conspiring against them in an attempt to free themselves from His rule? Why? It's because sin has so twisted their minds to be at enmity, to be at hatred and anger towards God. They are enslaved to sin's power, which will ultimately destroy them. They hate Him, and they hate His Christ, who, as Hebrews 1.3 says, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So if Jesus is God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature, of course they hate Him. Why wouldn't they? If they're at enmity towards God, to Yahweh, of course they're going to hate Jesus. Of course they are. Have you ever noticed that, and sometimes still today in culture, you can talk about God, but as soon as you mention the word Jesus, the temperature changes in the room. Have you ever noticed this? Because now you're getting a little bit too specific. Now you're getting just a little bit into too much impolite conversation. People who hate God and reject His reign and reject the Messiah's reign are what the Bible describes as fools. They do not heed God's wisdom. What a believer... What is a believer to do in view of this foolish rebellion? What are we to do? What's our response? Well, I think the Bible actually gives us an application. In Acts chapter 4, after the disciples are released, they actually this passage is actually quoted. And I'll just read. This is from Acts 4 and um, verse, uh, verse 24. I'll start reading there. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. And then they go on. But I want to skip down to verse 29. How do they apply this? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What are we to do when we see our world say, we do not want Jesus, we do not want God to reign over us? What do we do? We pray, let us take a page out of the Apostles' book. We pray for boldness to keep speaking the truth. That's what we do. And we are not quiet. We refuse to be quiet. We in love declare the supremacy of God 
through Jesus Christ and we call them to turn from their rebellion and to kiss the Son. And we'll talk about that more later. But what is Yahweh's response? What's God's response to their plotting? Let's continue reading. And this is Yahweh's response. It's the anointed's installation. This is uh, verses 4 through 6 of the psalm. What's God's first response? Laughter and mockery. God's first response is laughter and mockery. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He who sits in the heavens. David describes God here as the one who sits in the heavens. Heaven is where God dwells. At least in a a special way. Because He is everywhere present. Amen? It is where His throne is. It is the location from which He reigns. One Bible commentator mentions how God is in the heavens, unable to be attacked. And while another notes that God's rule is greater than all these other rulers rule, which is merely the earth. So the question must be asked, who's going to go up to heaven to bring God down to fight Him? Or, better yet, who's going to go up to heaven and battle God on His own turf in His throne room? It's ridiculous, right? One commentator talks about the ridiculousness of this. And it's true. Which, which puny rebel on this earth is going to bring God down to overthrow Him? The answer is obvious, right? Nobody. Certainly, you're not going to go up to heaven to fight Him. I don't think God will allow Jacob's ladder to go that way for that reason. But anyway, that's another thing, another time. God laughs. God's laughter intends to mock the world's rulers and the leaders attempt to overthrow Him. It's a fruitless and foolish exercise which only deserves the contempt He can give it through laughter. Now, as it's pointed out here, um, instead of Yahweh, there's another term that is used for God here, and it's Adonai, which means master. means master. That's also pointed out here um, as well. So, the master here, he laughs and he holds them in derision. Another, other translations state this differently, which helps brings out the meaning here. Um, the LSB has mocks them, the NSB has scoffs at them, CSB has ridicules them, and the Net Bible has taunts them. So God is mocking the world for their foolishness. But laughter and mockery is not the only thing that God does. His second response is a wrathful, terrifying declaration, and that's verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, The Lord's laughter and mockery turns to wrath against the nation's rulers. His wrath is against them because of their rebellion against his and his anointed rule. This is pointed out in the writing, and I think it's really obvious here. That God mocks and laughs, but eventually it arouses his anger as all rebellion does. Amen? He responds to the declaration by making a declaration of his own. It is one with, filled with the just and holy wrath against them and their sin. And this declaration, notice, it does what? It terrifies them. His announcement is so dreadful that it will cause the haughty kings to tremble and cower in fear. What is it that the Lord says that fills their souls with dread? Well, verse 6 tells us, What's the declaration? My king is installed on my mountain. 
Verse 6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The declaration that God has installed his uh, Messiah on his holy hill, or as other translations say, mountain, will strike fear into their hearts. The personal act of God Himself moving to install His King on the mountain that He has sanctified for Himself demonstrates His response to their conspiracy to overthrow Him, as is pointed out. It's as if God says, Rage and conspire all you want. I've installed My King, the One I've revealed through My servants in Jerusalem, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to stop my sovereign plan. It's done. You're finished. I would love to encourage everyone here in the sound of my voice and anyone who would ever hear this message to warn you about the grave dangers and the folly of rebellion against God. Older men and older women. It is a folly to think that if you've wasted or spent your life rebelling against God, that it's too late for you to turn now. I don't care if you have five years or five minutes. It is foolish to continue rebelling against God. Kiss the Son, embrace Him, turn from your sins and place your trust in Jesus. And you will be blessed. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Young men and young women, it is folly to think that you will overthrow God and His rules because you find them oppressive. It's foolish. Hear this. Sin has so twisted your mind that you think garbage is food. And you think healthy spiritual food Nourishment is garbage. That's the worst kind of deception there is. To think what is good is evil, and evil is good. I plead with you to look at the sun, to kiss the sun, and to see how wonderfully great he is, and turn from your folly. Or those in between, do not think that God cannot see your rebellion. His records are up to date. Nothing escapes his eye. One day he will call you to account and I plead with you to know the blessing it is to worship and honor the Son and to see your folly of rebellion for what it is. Don't let the Lord's declaration of Jesus being on his holy mountain terrify you. Instead, let it make you run to him in repentance and faith. We not only see the anointed's rule in Yahweh's response, we also see it in Yahweh's decree, which centers on the anointed's inheritance. And this is, this is the fourth bullet point here. Yahweh's decree, the anointed's inheritance. This is verses 7 through 9. So what's the first part of Yahweh's decree? You are my begotten Son. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. If we look closely, we can see what Bible commentators have observed. The speaker changes in verse 7. Did you notice that? It is no longer Yahweh who's speaking, but it is the anointed Himself. 
It is the Messiah. It's Jesus who's talking here. Yahweh's anointed speaks of a decree which Yahweh declared to him. That is the Messiah. He reveals what the decree is, and it comes in three parts. And the first part is, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does this mean? Now, some would argue about begotten being divine, and I think you can make an argument about that. But I, but I want to make I want to point out though that I think what this is referencing. Bible commentators talk about this, and I think this is right. That this is referring to David's God's covenant with David. It's being referenced here. I think they're correct. The Davidic covenant is an extremely important covenant in the Bible. It helps us understand the message of the Bible and God's sovereign plan. God makes a covenant with David and his offspring to establish his dynasty, his throne, forever. You can find the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, and there's a good portion of it referenced in Psalm 89 as well. And you can read about it more in detail later. Here I would just like to quickly reference an element of the Davidic covenant that is expressed. The idea of David's descendant being God's son. In 2 Samuel 7.14a says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 1 Corinthians 17 verse 13, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God tells David that he himself will be a father to David's descendant and David's descendant will be a son to him. God will never ultimately abandon him. He will love and care for him like his own son. So the anointed says here that Yahweh will tell him that he, the anointed, is his, that is Yahweh's son. Fair enough. But what does the today mean? What's that referring to? Paul actually interprets this, what this meaning is, in a message he gave to a synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia, in Acts 13, verses 32 and 33. And it says this, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to us to the fathers, that He fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, isn't that interesting? He called it the second psalm too. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So what's Paul saying? Paul is saying that Jesus' resurrection is when God begot the Messiah in this way. God proved to the entire world in Jesus' resurrection from the dead that Jesus is the Messiah. That He is David's Son, that He is the King of Israel, that He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God vindicated Jesus and His ministry in the resurrection. As Romans 1.4 says, that Jesus, quote, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. As Bible commentator Alan Ross mentions, Jesus' resurrection and ascension was his, is His coronation as the Messianic King. What's the second part of the announcement? Essentially, Yahweh says to Jesus this, Your inheritance is the entire world. Your inheritance is the entire world. Verse 8 says, Ask of Me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Ask of Me. You see that? God wants the anointed to see, to ask Him for Him to do something for Him. He wants Him to ask. What's it He wants the anointed one to ask? He wants Him to ask for the very people who are in rebellion against them, the nations, and for the land on which they occupy, the ends of the earth. And notice it goes on, I will make the nations your heritage. 
Upon the anointed's request, Yahweh will make the very ones who are rebelling against him his inheritance. Other Bible translations bring that out, and I think that's right. We should understand that is inheritance here. Instead of the nation successfully overthrowing God and his anointed, they will become the anointed's inheritance. God is going to give the rebels to Jesus, as well as the nations who willingly submit to his rule. Everyone will belong to him, whether in destruction or in praise and service to him. And notice it says, the ends of the earth for your possession. Not only will God give, will Yahweh give the anointed, the peoples of the nations, but he will give them their land. As sovereign over all creation, the world certainly belongs to Jesus, but as the Messiah, he has earned the right to be crowned as visible ruler of the earth and to be publicly seen as such. Now, I would stress that. Now, something to understand about inheritance. The inheritance was a critical concept to the people of Israel. Each tribe was allotted a certain portion of the land with specific boundaries in the promised land. The Mosaic law protected the land inheritance from going to another tribe forever. Eventually, the land was always to return to the tribe who inherited it. The land inheritance was a gift from God to his people, and it was a sign of the covenant love and faithfulness he had to them. They were zealous to acquire it and keep it. Even one of the most pious and zealous for God did not think himself above asking for his inheritance when he believed the appropriate time had come. And we won't turn to the passage, and I apologize, I put the wrong passage in the bulletin. It's actually Joshua 14. Not 15, excuse me. Joshua 14, verses 6 through 14. And it tells of the story of Caleb coming to Joshua to ask for his inheritance. And he talks about how Moses swore it to him, and it was the specific land, and the age he was when it happened, and how long he had to wait. You know how long Caleb had to wait to get his inheritance? 45 years. And yet he said, I'm still as strong as ever. I'm able to take this land. Essentially, give me what's mine. If Caleb came calling for his inheritance after 45 years, expecting to receive the same land Moses swore to give him, and actually received the same land to which there were actual eyewitnesses who saw Caleb actually inherit it, then you can certainly bet on, church, Don't bet. But you can actually bet on the fact that God is going to give Jesus the peoples of the nations and the land as His inheritance. And you can expect that there's going to be eyewitnesses to the event. The whole world is going to see it. Count on it. If it doesn't happen, then God's faithfulness and truthfulness are called into question. As is pointed out, I don't think any of us would want to call that into question. Yahweh has one more part to His decree and it involves the nature of the anointed's rule. Part 3. Your rule will be absolute. It says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You shall break them into a rod of iron. What's that mean? The Messiah will break His enemies with a rod of iron. The rod here, as it's pointed out, is a scepter, which is a small rod which a king yielded that symbolized his authority. The scepter consists of the element of iron, which, as is pointed out, symbolizes strength. David is saying here that the Messiah's rule will be absolute. It will be as strong as iron, and all of the anointed's enemies will be crushed by his rule. 
This section is pointed out, is quoted three times in the New Testament, all in the book of Revelation. Except there, they, they use the word rule, but we don't have time to get into that. And notice the text says here, and dash them like a potter's vessel. David further describes that his enemy's destruction is being dashed into pieces. Or as the Legacy Standard Bible in the 95 New American Standard renders it, being shattered. How will the Messiah's enemies be dashed or shattered? They will be shattered like a potter's vessel. Dried clay is certainly fragile, as perhaps many who have received clay creations as gifts from their children can attest. Bible commentators note that this image refers to or may refer to an ancient king shattering a king under his authority. Certainly there's a stark contract between the symbol of the Messiah's rule, which is iron, and these kings, which are clay. Be assured, church, that Jesus, God's Son and anointed King, will receive His inheritance. The world and all its inhabitants. Everyone will see it take place. If you cannot hold on to the promises of God for yourself, which you should, but if you are in desperate situation where you cannot see, you cannot see God's promises to you, and you're like, how will I know God will fulfill His word? Have no fear, God has never, ever, ever turned away His Son. Ever. And if He will keep His Word to His Son, He will most assuredly keep His Word to you. God will always fulfill His promises to Jesus Christ. Always. Because His glory is on the line. And God will not let His glory be besmirched. So where are the world and its rulers? Where do they go from here? David tells us, and them, and it involves warnings of wisdom. This is our last point. Warnings of wisdom. Serve Yahweh and kiss the anointed. Serve Yahweh and kiss the anointed. This is in verses 10-12. through 12. Bible commentators note here that the psalm functions like wisdom literature here. It gives counsel. It tells the listener what action to take and which action to avoid. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Now therefore, that is, in light of everything that's been said about the futility of their plot, their conspiracy, in light of God's response to them, his mockery, and in light of his decree to his anointed one, what are they to do? O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. David addresses the world's kings, instructing them to be wise. The Net Bible renders it this way. I like this. So now, you kings, do what is wise. So in other words, practice wisdom, kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. David also addresses the rulers of the earth. He tells them to receive the warning that he's about to give them. So in light of Jesus' installation as king over the earth and his rule which is inevitable, he encourages the psalmist, kings and rulers, to be wise to receive the warning and in accordance with that warning, change course. In other words, as we would call it, repent. What's the first warning? Fearfully and joyfully serve Yahweh. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear. The first part of the first warning is a call to serve Yahweh with fear, with reverential awe. And signing, instead of signing their own death warrant through conspiracy and rebellion, David calls on these kings and rulers to submit themselves to God serving Him with the awe and respect He deserves. Notice rejoice with trembling. These kings and rulers are not called to serve God in the spirit of bitterness or rancor, but instead with a spirit of rejoicing. 
Serving Yahweh was designed to be delightful and filled with joy. And David would not rob them of this. He doesn't want them to miss the opportunity to serve Him. However, the joy is mixed with trembling. Again, with reverential awe. God is a joyous master to serve, but knowing His holiness, His power, His otherness, and His mighty acts, He's also a fearful one that we serve. Amen? Second warning. Honor the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The word kiss here in the Hebrew actually means to kiss. But as it's pointed out, the word is, expresses the idea of paying or doing homage or to show honor. That's the idea, to show honor to someone. And who are the kings and the rulers of the earth supposed to show honor to? The Son, the Messiah. They're to recognize Him as King over the earth. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way. So what are the consequences for not honoring the Son? He will be angry at their refusal to give Him the rightful public honor and consequently, those who don't honor Him, they'll perish. Notice again the callback to Psalm 1.6, but the way of the wicked will perish. For His wrath is quickly kindled. So what's this talking about? Does this mean that Jesus is a divine hothead visiting His exploding anger on anyone who dares light His short fuse for any minor infraction? No. It seems like David's highlighting here the imminency of the anointed's wrath, as the CSB renders it, for his anger may ignite at any moment. The anointed's wrath may be soon visited upon those who do not honor him. And then David saves the best for last. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. David saves the positive result of those who come unto the anointed's rule for last. Those who take refuge in the Messiah are blessed. What are some of the blessings we receive for taking refuge in the Messiah? I'm reading a book right now by Mike Riccardi called To Save Sinners. And it's, it, it, one of the things that it does, it just reminds me of how much Jesus accomplished on the cross for us when He died. There's a few here I list and there's some of my own. What are some of the benefits, brothers and sisters, that we have for taking refuge in Jesus? Let's think about them just for a second because our time is gone. We get the complete and eternal forgiveness for all of our sins. We are redeemed from our bondage to sin. Our relationship to God is reconciled. We're reunited with the God who created us and loves us. We are no longer at war with God. Dwell on that one all day. But instead, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. As it's pointed out, we will reign with the Messiah and we will dwell with the Messiah and God Himself forever. Amen. There are many more blessings we could list for those who take refuge in the anointed and honor Him. But these show us that there's no comparison between a life that honors the Son and the one who does not. Obviously, the one that honors the Son is eternally greater while this one leads to flourishing now and in eternity, if you do not honor the Son, it leads to perishing now and in eternity. So friends, if you are not kissing the Son, or if you are not honoring Him as Lord and as Savior, if He is not your King, I would plead with you today to repent of your rebellion against Him and to place your trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins today and place your trust in Him your only confidence, your only hope in Him. Serve God with fear. Honor Jesus with your life 
and warn others. This, this psalm has shown us so much about Jesus today, and we don't have any more time to go into it. But I encourage you to read this psalm and to see the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ and how His reign is coming. And there is a warning in it for us that our rebellion against God will not be successful, ever. It will only lead in failure. But if we serve the Lord with fear, if we kiss the Son, if we honor Him, if we turn from our rebellion and honor Him as our Savior and Lord, we will be blessed if we do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You very much for this time we've had in Your Word. I pray now, Father, that You would apply it to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that You would be with us now as we conclude our time of worship. Help us to serve You and kiss the Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.